My name is Roy Malloy and you are listening to The Dawn of Crime, a podcast that I have created to make biographies for those people in our community that made our community what it is, possibly by nefarious means. The crooks, the criminals, the con men, the sketchy ones, the people that made us aware of what we aren't or what we don't want to be because of who they were. Today I'm going to be talking about Dolly Gray. Now if you've never heard of the song um, Goodbye Dolly Gray, I believe you'll know it, right? Particularly if you're Australian and more so Victorian. Uh, there's a very famous footy team, football for those of you in America, Australian rules football team in Collingwood. Now Collingwood's one of the older teams. It's um, also got a reputation for being um, a team who likes to take on the hard challenges and is uh, more the working class side of life. Collingwood's football song, their, their club song goes, Good old Collingwood forever. Right. You know that, that tune? The original name of that song is Goodbye Dolly Gray. Now, it was a phenomenal hit. Like it was, it was so popular in 1902, 1903, that there were venues, bars and pubs, clubs and restaurants that, that were banning the singing of it. Now, you've got to remember, at that time in the world, there was no radio, there was no television, there was no... And nothing other than what you created yourself or witnessed somebody create, creating for you as entertainment. So it was either theatre or self-made. So there was a lot of sing-song people would go to a bar or, and we, we call that music hall in a lot of places where there was a piano and people would sing and they're always looking for a new popular song oh goodbye dolly gray became that song it became so popular that it was being banned in certain venues at that time in the in australian history there was one piano for every two and a half to three people so it, it, it was it was a very big you could go anywhere and find a piano and start playing goodbye dolly gray now come along Squizzy Taylor. Squizzy Taylor kind of emerges on the scene with a bunch of crimes but really starts to hit his paces in 1907. He cuts apart from the pack um, in 1907 with really his first ever big deal. Um, how do you describe this? He, you get a lot of, I mean there's countless crooks and you can, you can just pour through the thousands and thousands of criminal records and see what they've done. It's usually pretty common, it's, it's like a repeat theme. You know, you get a, a crook and it's, I don't know, vagrancy or it's burglary or it's uh, receiving stolen goods again and again. It's nothing very special. Like, these are guys who are the socially the bottom of the pile and they, predominantly men, and they commit low-hanging fruit kinds of crime. I got a cousin and uh, she's married to a guy who was a very senior cop and he has a view. He said to me, you know what, crooks are lazy. He said, if there's been a fire, you literally just go to all the service stations around the area and you say, hey, have you sold petrol to anybody with a jerry can lately? And you'll find them. Crooks are lazy. Also, let's be honest, right? If you are going to stoop to a life of crime, you're probably not that smart. Uh, You know, I'm just going to call it. If that's that's the life you are letting yourself lead, you're not trying to make yourself better, you're not a a rocket surgeon. (laughs) But Squizzy, on the other hand, he, he's different. He kind of cuts apart because he's committed to crime. He never, never, ever lets you down by giving into the temptation to be honest for a, for a split second. He is, he's a daily crook. Every day he wakes up and he works on his career as a crook. He, I feel like Squizzy really personally does enjoy pickpocketing. Like, he, there are times when he does not need the money and he still does it. So I've got to say, it's just maybe that's him keeping his... His skills sharp, but you know he's he starts to show in 1907 when 
he's 18, 19 years old, that he's starting to really plan bigger events. He, he wants to, to do things that are more than just pickpocketing. So the first real glimpse we get of this, we see Dolly Gray. She's, the, she's well embroiled in his first real attempt to do something big. And we've seen Squizzy in like a push gang with his, his brother, Claude, and they're, they're beating a kid with bits of pipe. Like he, he's not at all afraid to really get his hands dirty as an aggressive, psychopathic standover man. But then there's a side to him that's cunning and planning. So in 1907, we find him in Bendigo, in the Golden City. Bendigo is, a, is, is the city of his, his dad and his grandfather. He was sent there when he was young as a foster boy. Um, we see him in a, a Methodist church as a young boy in a pantomime, and he's living with the minister uh, as a kind of, not alone, he's, he's living in a boy's home governed by the minister. And we find him again and again in Bendigo. It's a, it's a place that he considers familiar. So it's the Bendigo Cup. It's a big racing meet, a horse racing meet, and he, he loves horse racing. It's a place where there's a lot of people he can slither in and out like a frail little shadow and he can rip people off left, right and centre. But we see him in Bendigo and we see him with a group of people. Now, it's kind of one of those things where you can you say guilty by association. Now, this is where we find Dolly Gray. It's the first real mention of her in any context. There's no mention of Dolly Gray, a person called Dolly Gray, before this. And she's she's not she's not a vagrant, okay? She's she's living in a house in a street in Bendigo called Mundy Street, 161 Mundy Street. And she's the owner. She's buying this house. She's paid £50 of £500, which the house is worth. Now, you can buy a house in that time for £300 to £400. So it's actually a really nice house. It's a, it's, it would be a, an affluent kind of house. The street itself, you can see it on Street View. If you jump on you know, Google Earth or one of them, you go to 161 Monday Street. It's actually not there anymore. Now, I find this truly fascinating. It's, it's serendipitously... Kismet. A lot of the places that Squizzy touched, was involved with, got his hands dirty in, a lot of those places were literally scoured off the face of the earth. A huge amount of the area that the Fitzroy Vendetta happened in, where there were daily shootings and where Ted Whiting lived, they're gone. They were bulldozed and made into open parkland where there's now a huge high-rise community flat. So that, that's also gone. Now, Monday Street does still exist, but where it, where the house was at 161, it's it's no longer there because the street was cut off short. They it kind of took a, took away maybe a third of the street and they made it into a um, the showgrounds. So it's a public area now, and th- there's no Monday Street at 161. I think it goes up to 102 or something. But this house was owned by Dolly Gray, and the night before the police busted in through the door with a search warrant there had been an explosion in market square at a printing press and the the police were pretty sure they knew who did it they did a they they did a, a sweep of the scene the next morning and they found that somebody had run a gunpowder fuse along the ground in the office of this building and they'd run it up to a, a dynamite cap with a pot of gelignite at the base of the safe of the company. Inside the, the safe was £12. 
now look I mean it's probably about know, seven or eight grand in our money now it might buy you a small car it's not a king's ransom right in in the fracas in the in the smoke and in the the panic they the, the crooks whoever they were they ran out and they, they left behind a whole bunch of silver coins on the ground that they probably didn't see kind of indicates that they got out in a hurry the fascinating bit about this story is that that building that they were in was once upon a time the Bendigo watch house for the police it's where you'd be taken if you were waiting to be processed for or you know charged with a crime interestingly a few years earlier Squizzy was absolutely taken to that building he would have known his way around it backwards and so now that it was a printing press and had been you know repurposed he would have known exactly where to go in that building at night so the police did a, a you know a roundup of all the usual suspects in Bendigo, but they knew that this wasn't the style of anybody they had. They also had a tip off from Melbourne that Squizzy Taylor was in town with others. Now the others are the are the other interesting part of this, right? So when they go to Dolly Gray's house, they knock on the door. She answers it. Policeman hands her a search warrant. She glares at him, and they push past. They get into the guts of the house, and they find Squizzy there with a guy called Percy Ramage. Now, Percy Ramage was an astounding guy. He was, he was so many things. But one of the things that truly makes Percy Ramage notable is he detested and hated the police like a vehement poison. So when the police came barging in, he was ready. To, he was absolutely ready to fight. The police kind of subdued him. They, there's no talk of a, a fight, you know, breaking out. But they start rounding them up and they say, you're all under arrest. There's two women there and one of them is a lady called May Carter. So May is also fascinating. There's three women, including Dolly Gray, and all three of them are wearing probably negligee. Not a lot in any respect. They find a loaded revolver with ammunition in the house, find a chisel, crowbars, and skeleton keys. Now, they believe that the skeleton keys are the same skeleton keys that were used to open the lock on the door at the printing press. And a skeleton key is a set. It's a set of keys, and on those old kind of fashion, those those square external lockbox kind of locks, you know, um, there's a set of keys you can get, and almost invariably, if you jiggle it around a bit, one of this set will probably open most locks in that day. So they've got a set of skeleton keys, these are all housebreaking implements, and you can be charged with having housebreaking implements. So they, they, the police start working out their charges. They're going to charge Dolly Gray with being the, um, a keeper of a house frequented by rogues and vagabonds. They're going to charge the, the men with being in the possession of housebreaking implements. They're trying to work their way towards proving that these guys broke into the printing press and blew the hell out of the safe. It's a very difficult era for the police to lay charges and make them successful, right? Because what happens is the police don't have CCTV. They don't have fingerprints. They don't have DNA. They're more or less literally restricted to eyewitness. Unless somebody saw it or there's somebody says, look, he told me he did it. I'm going I'm to be a witness to him confessing. You need a witness. Otherwise, it's just about impossible to convict someone. Now, throughout Squizzy Taylor's life, we see time and time again that there's one thing that he sticks to. This guy loves theatrical energy. I don't know how you'd say it. Anything that is kind of uh, over the top or attention and intense and 
He loves the process of court. He loves court hearings. He loves the attention. It's like a theatre to him. And throughout his entire life, you start to think that this guy is addicted to that, that moment where he shines in court. But he also knows the facts, right? The police read out the charges. All he has to do is stand up in court and say, no, I didn't. And it's over to the police to prove that he did. So all he did was say, I, I didn't have those. They weren't mine. I don't know whether they, they're in the house. Don't other people have tools in their garage, you know? But we find Dolly Gray in this mix. Now, interestingly, I've, I've hunted for so long to try and find some kind of reference to Dolly Gray that proves that that was an alias and she was some other person. A couple of years later, we find Dolly Gray with Squizzy and he's in court for his own charges. And they say to him, are you connected with the very notorious Dolly Gray? Squizzy says, I have a wife called Dolly Gray. And so he names her in court under oath as his wife later on. Now, there's proof that they are associated for quite some time, all the way up to 1918 at least. So she has a brothel in Little Collins Street at the time. Squizzy gets into a fight with one of her neighbours. Um, and, he, you know, he ends up in court twice over it. And they, they say that he is, you know, they connect him in, in the court proceedings. They name Dolly Gray again. So Squizzy at least is involved with her for, we're now talking 11 or 12 years. So they have a substantial relationship. Dolly is five years older than Squizzy. Now, you kind of start to wonder, he's a parasite on, on society. He, he's not a nice person. He's a bit of a scumbag. Well, a complete scumbag. He doesn't have... He has a strange conscience. If I'm trying to read what Squizzy is like, he seems to have an absolute, genuine, pure love for his children. And he has three daughters in his life. One of them passes away as an infant. One of them is born to Lorna Kelly. And one of them is born to Ida Pender. Now, I'm in communication with Squizzy's daughter to Ida Pender. She's 97 years old. It appears to me that Squizzy genuinely wanted to live a life where he could be left alone, have all the resources he needs, be a dad and a husband, and that would have suited him just fine. He opened a fruit shop in the latter part of his life, just leading up to his death in Richmond. He had this little fruit shop and he had, it was successful enough that he had a truck and an employee. And we know that because there was a car accident in Flinders Street near the train station where his, I think it was his, his truck full of fruit was sitting stationarily and a horse got spooked and ran into the back of it with a horse-drawn vehicle. And we, we kind of then find out in the newspapers who mentioned, ah, oh, the, the truck belonged to Squizzy Taylor. Right? So we, we know that Squizzy had a successful fruit business for a bit, but then very quickly we see charges against him when he and Ida Pender were running the upstairs residence as a sly grog shop. She was probably making some kind of beer or ale. Um, you know, and, and honestly, she's got all the access in the world to fruit. She might have been making cider or anything, who knows? But she was serving it upstairs, and they ran it. You know, they, they say in the, in the court hearings that Ida Pender and Squizzy Taylor were running it like a bar. There was a, a cash register kind of pot of money, there was 
place for customers to sit and be served. So, you know, we, we know that Squizzy loved that kind of domestic life and really wanted it, but he absolutely wasn't going to work for it in any kind of job. So working for himself was about as close as it came. But we don't see Dolly Gray much past the beginning of the Fitzroy Vendetta in 1919. So I hunted high, I hunted low. I looked at um, all the ancestry sites I cannot find are listing for anybody with a name similar to Dolly Gray. So I searched in births, deaths and marriages. Given the, the, the date that they said she was born in 1882 in the newspapers, they said she was 25 at the time and that would have made her born in 19, uh, sorry, 1882. So I did a search between 1880 and 1885. Every name with the last name Gray, <clears throat> there, there's no record, right? So then it had to be, I just, I had this hunch, and I, I'm usually right when it comes to historical research hunches, and I kept searching. I was reading every newspaper article that mentioned Dolly Gray. Now, often what happens is a crime like the, the safe blowing in Bendigo will happen, and then you'll get a syndicated news press. So the Bendigo Star will write the first story, and they'll send it to, or sell it maybe even to other newspapers, They'll read it, and they might change it a bit to make it their own style, but they'll print it, a version of it. But then there's two or three newspapers in the same area, and those are the newspapers that I had to find, the ones who are more likely to know who she is, because that journalist lives in that town. It took me a while, and I reckon I read about oh, maybe 50, 60 newspaper articles, all the same story, all about that safe blowing, all about... Dolly Gray and the, the proceedings and the week that follow, whether she's charged, she's stood up in court, she's ultimately given a suspended sentence and a fine. But in one of these newspapers, one of the journalists records the, the dialogue in the court hearing a little bit more closely than the others, and you start to hear her voice a little bit. And the prosecutor stands up and he says, Now she owned this house. Her mother in South Melbourne assists her with money sends her money by a registered post once, a, once or every couple of weeks you know and when she purchased the house she purchased it in the name of Haynes H-A-Y-N-E-S now it doesn't say she had a different first name but it's the first mention that her real last name is Haynes and I was right Dolly Gray is an alias. I've begun the search and I haven't found anybody born with the name Dolly Haynes within a five-year span of 1882. But this is the beginning of a search and, you know, I'll keep you guys posted, but being able to hunt these people down means that I could be a step closer to finding a real name, being able to research who her children were, if she had any, who her nephews and nieces might have been, Maybe find a, a family member down the tree who says, yeah, actually, you know what? Dolores Haynes was my great-great-auntie and she left this little box of photos upstairs. Would you like to see them? So it's kind of, that's kind of my mission at the moment is to find the other half of who Dolly Gray is and that hunt will continue. Hope you guys have enjoyed this. This has been a little, um, little bit of a ramble about where I'm at with what I'm doing. To give you some more information, I'm also working really hard now on the next issue of The Dawn of Crime. So The Dawn of Crime are the books that I've written where I can dump this kind of information uh, that isn't a part of the main Squizzy Taylor biography. 
in the new book, I've written a, a series of stories that are, they're all true crime biographies about people who were criminals between about 1880 to 1930. But this book has a very particular theme. It's called The Colour of Crime. And I'll be talking a little bit more about that in the next podcast. In the meantime, please make sure you Google Squizzy Taylor The Biography by Roy Malloy, M-A-L-O-Y. And if you want to see some other amazing bits and pieces that I've dug up, head over to my Facebook page, which is Roy Malloy Author. And you've got to write the word author, otherwise you don't really get through to it. And uh, hit like and follow. Send me a message if you've got any stories of your own. Would love to hear them. Thanks for listening.